This is episode number 558 of the Inner Fight Podcast. Welcome back to another edition of the Inner Fight Podcast and thank you guys for tuning in. Thanks for all the support. Through the last shows, we've been getting some amazing feedback. Thanks also to our show sponsor, Smith Street Paleo. Please do hop over or keep hopping over to smithstreetpaleo.com. Check out all the stuff that my wife, Holly, keeps pumping out on there. Loads of different recipes. And if you have just come back from a summer and overindulged, you probably need to jump in on a meal plan. Email them, hello at smithstreetpaleo.com, and they will be very happy to serve you. Today's show is with a gentleman called Bram Connolly. I actually was on his show a couple of weeks back and had an amazing chat with him. And as soon as we finished, I sent him a mail. I said, mate, I've got to get you on my show. So that's what we've done. This one's via Skype. I think there's loads of value in this. I'm not going to say anything else. I just really hope you guys enjoy the show. Let's hop straight into it. Yeah, what a great intro. That's it. We are live, mate. I have with me, as I said, folks, Bram Connolly. I was on his show. That came out, actually, mate, it came out today. You just posted yes. that up today. And uh, this show is going to come out in, in, in a week or so. But, mate, I'm super interested. I'm actually, I have both of your books right here. Uh, <laughs> mate, funny story will come to that later, but mate, I don't want to cock it up. Give us an intro. Who are you? Where are you from? What's going on? Uh, righto. So my name is Bram Connolly. I guess that I used to identify as a special forces major from Australia. Um, and since understanding that I was probably pretty crap at that, I'm now a military thriller author um, I run a, a consultancy, a leadership consultancy business, as well as Warrior U, which is, um, which is, a, I guess, a motivational platform for me to experiment with different, you know, leadership, human optimization, resilience frameworks, and then whatever works for me, I just put out to the general population to try and keep everyone moving along, you know. Yeah, very cool, mate. This is there's a lot of stuff I want to ask you, mate. But I I really want to sort of kick it off with I like to try and get a little bit of like what was life like growing up? What do you remember? Sports? What you wanted to be? Run us through your your your, your earlier years, mate. Tell us how naughty you were as well. That's always a good one. Um, look, I come I come from a, a family that was I guess broken really early. Um, mum and dad weren't together when I was around six months old onwards. So I lived with my dad primarily uh, from about the age of four. And and then the family grew when he remarried and, and then had kids. Yeah. Um, I think because of that, I was quite a, a bit of a, I was a bit of a loner to be fair. Um, made a lot of my own games, a lot of my own luck. Not pretty average sort of childhood. Grew up in the York Peninsula down in South Australia, um, for half the year and the other half of the year, sort of at Banksia Park High School in Adelaide. And uh, I really, I guess it's one of those things I look back on, I wonder if any of us are in control of our destiny because I, I just knew I wanted to join the army. I just yeah. knew that I was going to have a life of service, e- even at about eight years old. Wow. Um, and yeah, and it, was just, it was just really strange. It was sort of preordained. I just knew where I was going. And then... Um, 17 years old, you know, everything that sort of happened before that all just sort of led to the day to walk into the recruiting office at 17 and one day and join the army. And then, and then, then I had a 20, 20 odd year career, but you know, sport, I guess I was, um, 
I was an above average runner at school. Uh, you know, I was doing under two minutes for the 800 as, as a, as a teenager, you know, as a, yeah, as, just as a teenager. Um, and I was doing, you know, four minute, I think around four minute 20 or something like that for the 1500 meters. Wow. Um, actually it's a little bit faster than that even, I think. And so I was, I was, you know, up and up around the third or fourth in the state for, for running at the time. But I never, but I, but I didn't train cause that wasn't, that's not what you did in the, in the eighties and nineties, early nineties, late eighties. You just, you just walked to and from school and then rocked up to the, to the, to the races and ran and then, you know, would, would come second or third in the state. Um, but I took, but I took, I, I tell some funny stories about it in a leadership book that I wrote. Cause I, I didn't realize I was that good a runner until I got to Kapuka and which is our basic training course. And then, you know, we would be told to run up and down this hill and make sure, make sure you don't come behind, you know, recruit Connolly. And of course that, that to me was a, you know, like a, a, a dog, you know, a bone to a dog and I'd, and I'd take off and leave everyone behind me. And, um, <laughs> And then they'd all get punishments, and I'd I'd think it was amazing, and not realizing that there was a thing called teamwork that I'd have to learn pretty quickly. <laughs> I was going to say, um, mate, that that wouldn't make you too popular with everyone, would it? Well, I didn't understand that sort of shit at that at seventeen. <laughs> I just wanted to win everything. Yeah. Right. Um. Yeah. So, so I guess that's me in a nutshell. You know, grew up in a in a bit of a strained family environment. Couldn't wait to get out of there. Knew I was going to join the army. Joined the army, and then sort of started to seek my own luck. What was it, mate, that when you were younger gave you the feeling that you were going to join the army? Mate, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a spiritual person, but I think there was something that I had to had to do while I was in the army that I just, just had to get done. It was probably my life mission. Who knows? Um, you know, because I found myself at 19 then uh, in Somalia with starving kids everywhere, yeah. um, which I think was a lot for some people to handle, but for me it was just another... It was just a job. Um, it was something that I knew I was there to do. Yeah, um, yeah I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Maybe it was TV back in the day. Um, yeah. You know, Platoon was out. Airwolf was out. <laughs> the, uh, you know, Yacht, Yacht Angry Shot came out. There was all those sort of, you know, Full Metal Jacket, all those sort of movies, I guess. Um, but it's just something I, I identified that that was my tribe. And I went, I went looking for my tribe and I found it and I was – yeah, I was super happy in that tribe for 20, 20 odd years. What was that like, though, mate? In nineteen ninety three, you were in Somalia. Now, the thought mm. for a lot of people to go to Somalia today is pretty frightening. You're there mm. in nineteen ninety three as a nineteen year old. Tell us a little bit about that, or whatever you can. Oh, I look at photos of myself there, and I wonder who let that kid out of school to go on, on work experience in Somalia. You know, I wouldn't know why I'd let my and I look at my nearly 10-year-old son and in, in nine years' time, he could be doing those things. And I just think that's just crazy, you know. Um, look, it was very well organised. It was the first time that an Australian battalion had deployed as a battalion group since Vietnam. So, you know, there'd been a long peace. Um, there was quite a professional battalion back in the day. And we were there to do a job. I was there as a Ford scout for 4 Platoon and Bravo Company. And I loved it. You know, I lived and breathed it. Right. And... For me, being at the front of the company or the front of the platoon as a scout was was the best job in the world, and it was all about your senses. It was all about you know that 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 sixth sense that we talk about. It was about observations, and never letting anyone sort of get a drop on you, which 
occasionally, occasionally people did. Yeah. But um, but yeah, it was it was it was the probably the the best introduction to soldiering that I could have had after being after going through training and then you know basic training and then infantry training and then and then going through the battalion for a year and then finding myself you know living out of a trunk in 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 Somalia. I mean, we we went for six weeks, I think it was, without changing our clothes. Wow. Um, when we first got there and, and that was just, I mean, I remember that now it's a frame of reference and we, you know, you and I talk at length about mental toughness yeah. and that's, that's still today. One of the things I look back on and go, yeah, but tonight I'll have a shower. Yeah. You know, whereas, whereas this was six weeks without a shower before we even, before we even started to live a life of normality, um, six, six weeks of rations. And then the, then the cooks burnt the bloody mess down anyway. So we did the best part of three months eating ration packs. Wow. You know, so for a 19 year old, that was all stuff that was, that, that was me building mental toughness and resilience. Yeah. Right from the start, mate. That's, uh, that's incredible. Mate, something happened on, it's actually quite funny. The show notes that I sent over to you, obviously one of the highlights was your 17th birthday when you went and enlisted, mate, you walked into, in, into, into the army office and you wrote back to me and you said, can you ask me something about my 21st? So, and I don't know anything about this. So tell us what happened on your 21st. Well, every major birthday that I had, because my birthday was in October and October is at the back end of the training year for, for the battalions and, and then for special forces as well. So it's when they come together to do either, you know, courses or run big, big lots of training. And on my 21st birthday, I was on the recon- reconnaissance course, you know, sitting sitting in the jungle in, in Coomba Loomba, looking out over a dam, you know, and no one, in, no one in the platoon knew it was my 21st or in the course knew it was my 21st. And I just lay there just going, what a fucking shit life. Like here I, here I am, I've been laying here for three days in the mud. It's now my 21st. And I just got to thinking about everyone else's 21sts, yeah, right. you know, and, and how they're all, they're all out there, you know, with, with girls and partying and having these big parties. And here I am laying behind a, you know, Swarovski scope, <laughs> looking out over a dam, writing notes in a notebook with, wow. with it raining and, you know, with, with lice all through the back of my blooming clothes and with leeches. And it was just, it was just one of those. It was again one of those frame of reference moments where you just go, "Well, I did. I never got that." You never get to go back and have your twenty first either. Yeah. You know? Does that make you? Do Do you think you build resentment because of that, mate? Because of what you missed, or do you? What in what way do you look at that situation? Because I think this could be actually quite a key learning for people. Because a lot of people sort of look back and go, "Oh, I missed out on such and such," and you know that's why this is. How do you think has it impacted you? What do you feel about it now, all these years later? Marcus, I am a huge believer in you walk in that office and you sign up and you know what you're signing up for. Yeah. And that's what, ser- that's what service is all about. And that's why I can't stand the, the veteran, you know, victim mentality that goes around when people are told, oh, you, you're going to go to Afghanistan or you're going to go to Iraq or you're going to go to these places. You walked in there and you made that decision and you took a, an oath to either, the, in our case, to either the country or the queen. Just yeah. so you know, minus to the queen. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so you, you know, so you make that, you make that oath. And so for me, missing out on that twenty-first is no big deal. You know, it, ju- it just is what it is. I knew what I'd so- what I signed up for, and I loved it. You know, Amazing. and I, I feel like 
this thing's creeping in in Australia where people say, you know, thanks for your service. And um, it's a very American thing. It doesn't sit comfortably with me because I feel like I should say back, no, I want to thank you for letting me surf because it was such a good job. And I mean, we don't even talk about the days where we just played PlayStation and drank Gatorade. <laughs> Yeah, you know, yeah. or where we knocked off, where we knocked off at ten in the morning, and then went and had an into cricket, you know, carnival all afternoon. Yeah, you know, you don't talk about that stuff. All you ever, all everyone wants to talk about is the times that they did at heart. You know, yeah. there's a lot more. There was a lot more good stuff that was happening in the army in the nineties than than hard stuff in my mind. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. Right. Now I, I do, I do feel like there's there's too much people who who want to, you know, they want to take. You know, but sometimes you got to give. If it's a life of service, you got to you got to give something back. Absolutely, mate. Your next step to, to to giving, mate, was was only a year later when in in 1994 you went forward, I, I guess, or was selected for 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 SAS selection. Can you talk to us a little bit about that, mate, and some, something that you came back with, saying you know owning your yeah. your, your weaknesses. Talk to talk to us as much as you can about that because I think that's interesting. Yeah. So, look. I got wrapped up in my own hype, had an Australian active service medal at 19, you know, was a Ford scout, had done the reconnaissance course and, and thought I was, thought I was really good to be fair. <laughs> so, so why wouldn't I just go to the, to the best unit, you know, in, in the military at the time? So we're in the Australian defense force. So, so I, I applied for the special air service regiment, found myself on their selection course. And I think probably, and I did some of the lead up training, but I didn't really take it that seriously. Like I said, I was a good runner. So I, I'd, I'd won a few things on the way and, um, you know, good enough that I was like, this is going to be, I'm going to breeze this in. <laughs> I think, I think I was on the bus in Perth when, um, when the, the corporal physical training instructor from, from SAS got on the bus with us and he was like nothing I'd ever seen before. He wasn't just your, a normal army PDI. This guy might as well have been Thor. Well, I knew I was done. I look back on it now knowing that I was, I already knew I was going to fail this. And, um, Why? and then I just went through, yeah, because I didn't think I was good enough to be there wow. because I knew I hadn't done the work, I think. So we were doing the swim test and they had us in the push-up position and then the PDI was walking around with a set of dog tags and he's waving the dog tags. Yeah. And he wanted us to own up to losing our dog tags. And it was one of the things you had to have on you. And I thought, for Christ's sake, they must know who it is. And they, they had us there for half an hour and everyone was like yelling at each other, under you know, like down in the push-up position, come on, come on. And people were collapsing and, and all this sort of stuff. And it wasn't until years later when I was the officer in charge of selection myself, because that's where this, this story goes in the end, uh, that I realized that that's all, it's all bullshit. No one oh, had wow. lost their dog tags, but this is just part of the process to, to break you down. Wow. Um, and so, you know, and, and I was letting that get, you know, that, that, that bothered me as well. And then, then that night we had a uh, pack march and the pack weighed, you know, enough that if I had a trained with it, I would have known what that weight was like, but I hadn't. So suddenly the first time I ever, you know, you, we talk about adaption, right, and adapting to things. Uh, we, it's hard to adapt to something when, you, when you're doing it for the first time in a race. <laughs> and so, yeah, and so the next, the next morning I woke up really sore and stiff and convinced myself that I had a back injury. And so I pulled off and um, was one of the first people to pull off on day three. Wow. And, and so anyway, I was RTU'd back to the unit, but it wasn't for a few weeks later. I was then put on the scout and tracking course and, you know, people were asking me about the SASR selection and how I went. And I was just, oh, you know, yeah, it wasn't too hard. And, you know, I just, I just, you know, I had an injury and, you know, we got through about the second, you know, this, you know, into the first week or whatever. 
but there was someone actually there, you know, who had friends that were in SS that, that called me out, said, no, that's not true, is it? Basically oh, wow. called me a liar in front of all these people when I was like, yeah, no, that's not true. Wow. You know, and, then, and then I became embarrassed about it. And then through that embarrassment, I went, I've got to own this. If I don't own this, I'll never get over this. Yeah. You know, and so I had to, I had to own, I had to own that. And as a 19 year old, and I do look, and you know, that's not, I don't feel like that's me now. I look back on that person and go, well, that, that kid learned something there. And I'm glad he did because it, it made me who I am today, but I had to own that failure, but I, but I didn't just own the lie. That's, that's, that wouldn't have been enough. I had to not only own the lie, I had to also own the fact that, well, you didn't do the work. You threw yourself up for something that you couldn't conceivably ever have have done if you weren't going to do the work and so you were just faking it the whole time so i had to yeah. own the whole process yeah i don't go into anything underdone anymore well, I do, well <laughs> if, I do, if i do go into anything underdone I, I i know i've gone into it underdone and then and then i know the second order effects of that and what i'm going to get out of it do you think that's something that's quite common mate like you know people go in and maybe a little bit arrogantly like that and you know because a lot of the time if that guy hadn't have been there and called your bluff You'd have, you'd have got away with it and you'd have, you'd have maybe even to this day, I don't think you would because your personality seems a bit different, but you know, there's a lot of people that that quitting and that like just making up a bullshit excuse seems like a legit option for them, doesn't it? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a definitive moment in my life and you know, and I, I, I thank that guy more often than not in my mind. Yeah. Um, if, if I hadn't have been held to account, not only for bullshitting people around me, but, but but for bullshitting myself, if I hadn't have done that, I wouldn't be the person I am today and I wouldn't have the drive that I have today. Yeah. Um, so I, I truly believe that too many people will go into things not not completely understanding either the complexity or or even um, understanding, you know, not fathoming the, 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 the huge requirements. Things like an Ironman, for instance, you go, oh, I'm going to do this Ironman. No, you're not. If you haven't done, if you haven't done a sprint distance, if you haven't done an Olympic, if you haven't done a half, you've got no right being on the on the start of an Ironman, yeah. you know. And it's the and it's the same with it's the same with SAS selection. If you think you're just going to rock up there and do SASR selection, because you know, because a few dudes stormed a, an embassy, you know, thirty <laughs> odd years ago or whatever it is, then you have got another thing coming. Because if you haven't done the time, if you haven't done the training, if you haven't done the weights, if you haven't done the pack marches, you got no rights being there. Very very few people will ever be successful by just rocking up. Yeah, what was it like then? The when when you went back? Well, fortuitously, I was in I was in a unit that was re-rolled to to a special forces unit, um, and so I was I was made to do special forces selection for commandos. Um, yeah, I was just told I was doing it, and so we, we were given a, a, a about three month training program, and I and I stuck to this thing like what on rice <laughs> I wasn't going to you know I was given this great opportunity and I was also a corporal at the time so I had I had my own soldiers that were that were going to be in there as a team with me and I learned something about myself through that process is that when people around me are failing you know my natural leadership tendencies tend to come out and I don't necessarily see the weakness in myself when there's other others around me doing it harder so um there's definitely something to that as well yeah it's um it's it's crazy i think i think i could ask you about a million one questions about things from this from the military and and how that comes into life but one of the things that i really want to get into a little bit bram is is that leadership and taking responsibility 
because in, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if in the p positions that you're in, like if you don't take responsibility and, and, and everyone takes his own role in leadership, people's, people could lose their lives, right? Yeah, and there's been a lot said about this sort of stuff. Jocko Willink talks about it at length. I've heard um, Dave Goggins talk about it, you know, a myriad of other Americans. I guess there's not as many Australians and, and Brits talking about it as much because it's just what we what we do. We've got a hierarchical leadership sense. Um, but, you know, a lot of the leadership lessons that I learned um, tours to Afghanistan, you know, team or on the national counterterrorism team in Australia, a lot of the leadership lessons that I, that I learned were actually lessons that weren't taught during, you know, officer training or the senior NCO or the senior non-commissioned officer training that I did. A lot of them were, were learnt by just interacting with, with people and trying to get the most out of people and understanding, understanding personalities. Um, and if, if the definition of leadership is to get other people to do what you want them to do because they want to do it, which is Simon Sinek's definition of leadership, then I think that it stands to reason that in, in order to be able to do that, you have to be able to almost manipulate yourself a little bit to get the best out of you in any given circumstance. And, and that manipulation, it's a dirty word, I guess, manipulation, mm. but that manipulation then extends to the people that you're trying to lead. If they don't see you standing on the flight line about to go and, and target, you know, the senior leadership of the Taliban, you're about to go in there and have a firefight with them. If they don't see you as a credible leader, then they're either looking around to find a credible leader in amongst them or they just won't go. Or if they do go, they're going to find a new leader. In, you know, it's very, it's very primal. Yeah. You know? So, so it, 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 there is a requirement to hone the craft of leadership. To, and a, and a, a young leader, a young officer especially, needs to understand the personalities of the people that they're leading and also understand, you know, what it is that they're taking them into and technically how to, how to get them through that, you know, whether that's that, that activity or whether it's a fight or whether it's a business deal, you know. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, it, it, it's very true, mate. And I think it's, I like what you said a little bit there about like manipulation. It's quite a... It's quite a cynical word, but it's it's somehow necessary. It's necessary in those situations to get those people to do what's right for for everyone in that in that particular moment, right? A hundred percent. And and some of it is it goes down to your own personality. So so I have to manipulate myself mm. as well because there's people who would be in those platoons that I don't like. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't consider myself a left of arc alpha male, but I would consider myself in the alpha category. Right. But at the same time, the real left of arc alphas, I don't particularly get along with, but I might, I might have to be more boisterous around them to get the most out of them. Mm. And then all the way on the other end of the spectrum, you know, you've got, you've got people who are really submissive and they're still there, you know, on, you know, and they, they might be a bit, a bit left of center of politics in some regards, greenies and the like, yeah. you know, and I've got, a, I mean, my, my degree, my, my major and my degree is peace studies, you oh. know? And so, and because of that, you know, sometimes I've got to pander to people who are, who have a lot softer ideologies than I do. Yeah. And that's a self manipulation to be able to, to change my viewpoint, to be able to get the most out of that person or the most out of myself in that situation. If, if people don't think that you're manipulating yourself, nearly every aspect of every conversation you're having, then you're going through life not understanding who you are. 
All you're doing is reacting to stimulus. Yeah. Right? But I, I make a conscious decision to, to manipulate my responses. Yeah. Um, and it is a manipulation. And yeah. it's like, I don't care. I don't care what you did on the weekend. But I'm going to ask you. Yeah. Because yeah. It's, it's a thing that we do. Because I, the next thing I want to do is I want to ask you to, to, to pick up a machine gun and rush that enemy. Yeah. Like, so <laughs> you, need, you need to have that. We need to have those. We need to have that. Those relationships, and some of those relationships are difficult to maintain because we're all different. Yeah. You get thirty guys in a platoon. Thirty guys in a platoon aren't going to like each other. Yeah. Yeah. How do you how do you come around that? Like moving. I mean, this is more in in, in into the leadership side and bringing teams together. What do you do? Like, how do you? You've had real life experiences. You've had thirty guys on a battlefield in Afghanistan that don't like each other, but. If you if someone screws up, life gets lost, and, and and I know that's happened. But how do you try and avoid that, and how do you bring it all together? Look, I I do think it's a it's a case of everyone coming together, and it's the same in business, and it's the, it's the same for for inner fight and warrior you for for PT businesses as well. You got to get everyone in a room, and the leader has to stand up in front of them, being accountable, all right, taking ownership, and saying this is the vision I have. That vision might be in 24 hours. We'll all be back here together with the following, looking, looking the following, the following way, you know, and, and getting ready for the next task. Or it might be the vision is two years from now this business will look like this, yeah. and this is the roadmap. And you get in front of a whiteboard, and we're, and you know, we we get we're going so far removed from our from our ancestral roots, but if you get up in front of a cave and start drawing paintings. Right. If you start, if you start drawing on a whiteboard, saying, "Hey, this is the time now. This yeah. is the time in two years. Here's a roadmap to go from here to here. Who's with me?" Yeah. And a lot of this, one of the key things that I learned about leadership is positivity. I've never ever seen anyone lead by not being positive. If you can show me a leader who's getting people motivated and moving them forwards without being positive, I'm going to call you out on it. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is. A, it is. It is a leadership superpower, and so I mean, take these two expressions for instance. Um, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to walk outside, we're going to put on our webbing and our rifles, and we're going to get on these helicopters, and it's really hot and it's really dusty, and we're going to go 40 kilometers, and we're going to land, and people are going to be shooting at us, and hopefully we'll be able to you know kill or capture a target. You know, as a as opposed to someone going, all right, listen up, guys. This is all about the person to the left and right of you. We we this is going to be tough, but we've trained for this our whole lives. There are people there who are going to lay down their lives to stop us succeeding in this mission, but they are going to lose. Who's with me? And yeah. people are like, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, of course you are. Yeah, you know? yeah. But you know, the, you, you can frame it any way you want, but it's got one one of the ways has got to be positive. If it's yeah. not positive, then you're not getting the best out of the team. Absolutely. Mate, after, we, uh, after you interviewed me for your podcast, as, as I said, folks, go and check that out. I'm going to put a link actually to that in the show notes, the Warrior You podcast. Bram, you sent me two books. Now, there's actually a story behind these two books, mate, in that the day they got here, my stepfather got here and he read them uh, or, or Holly's stepfather got here and, and he read them in five days he read both books in five days and, yeah right uh, yeah. trying to put me out of business well i don't know mate. i was just like what the hell he goes no i just really enjoyed the first one so i'm gonna read the second one and i said to him i said well listen mate i said that's awesome because i have to interview this guy 
in about two weeks. So before you leave, make sure you just write me a one side of A4 on each book so I can read the notes and have a really good conversation with Bram about each book. Now, he's failed to do that. So I have, to, I have to admit to you, mate, that I haven't yet read these two books, but I'm going to read these two books. I want you to tell us a little about, about your books. There are two of them out, one of them you wrote in 2016, one in 2017. Talk to us about the books and, 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 and why you wrote them, why you write, because I think this is a really interesting part of your story. I, I guess for me, you know, I was wearing body armor, let's say, for my whole life. Everything I was was in the military. And when I left the military, because we had a, we had a couple of kids, my wife and I, and, you know, and, I, and I guess I realized I was probably going to get shot at less if I wasn't in the army um, and I'd be around to see them grow up. So, so that was part of the reason for me leaving. And, then I, and I had a rough transition out because I, everything I'd identified as I'd, I'd, I'd now gone and gotten rid of. And so now I was just this, I was Bram. I was no longer, you know, Major Bram Connolly or, 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 you know, Special Forces Commando. I was just, just this civilian. And I found myself doing a little bit of work and I, I did a structural edit on a, on a person's book, um, Chris Masters' book. And the publisher said to me, you know, would you be interested in writing an autobiography? And I, so I laughed and said, well, that's, you know, I, I don't have that you know, greater career that, that anyone would actually want to listen to it. Mm. And then she said, well, how about some military fiction? Um, sort of like Chris Ryan or Andy McNabb type stuff. Mm. And I was like, yeah, I'll have a go at that. So, so I wrote the first book and I, I tried to keep it as close to real as I could of, of my, and it was quite cathartic. It was basically my tour in Afghanistan with a whole lot of other rubbish thrown in there you know, to make it into a story. Mm. And, but a lot of the firefights that are in that book, uh, they really occurred. And I wrote that book in, uh, actually in the cafe downstairs at Fit Republic in Dubai. No and way. also in the, in the, and in the Costas, a lot of people might remember the Costas in Arabian ranches. Yeah. And I used to hold up in the Arabian ranches there and just type away. And I ended up writing this 80,000 word book, you know, and, and some of the book is, is, it was good for me to write it too because living in living in Dubai and I worked for for the um, you know uh, the Emiratis. Some of the stuff that I would ask them about um, Islam, especially, it made a lot more sense to me years later than it did in 2010. And so I got to get in the head of the of the Taliban as well, and um, and so I could write the book about from both sides, you know. Um, and I, and I felt like writing the fighting season was as I said, a really cathartic experience and, and easier for me to move forward. And it became my new persona. It became my new body armor. I'm now Bram Connolly, the, the military you know, fiction author. And then the second book, um, which is a follow-on to the first with the same um, protagonist, you know, Matt Ricks, re really I just wanted to travel through Turkey and Italy. Um, so I just set it in, uh, in Iran, Turkey and Italy and then uh, went for broke you know, and London, oh, wow. and then, and then just went to all those places and wrote, wrote the book from different, different cafes and stuff like that. Um, and that was what I was doing with my time off. And, you know, I, I, I honestly feel like because of how busy we were for a best part of a decade after September 11, when I got out, I didn't have anything to do. And I, and I need, and my work ethic, you know, no one will match my work ethic. So I decided, well, I'll just write 80,000 word books. 
and you know now I've written a, a leadership book as well which is which is going to come out in a, in a few months time um, doing the podcast obviously although you know I've just said no one will match my work ethic I've done 65 and you've done 500 <laughs> uh, podcasts but um, yeah I, I, I do feel like it's been a natural extension of who I am and it was good because I was able to reinvent myself and 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 provide myself with another reason and you know you and I've talked about this before with regards to it's very possible that the secret to life, you know, is just self-development, and this is just another mm. another extension of me developing myself into into someone better than I was yesterday. It's another cliche, yeah. but anyway. yeah, interesting. I don't like that one, but I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, Mate, oh, I, I heard I heard episode five hundred yesterday of In a Fight, and you were talking about there was something there about living your best life or whatever it yeah. was. And, uh, and I was like, you and I should just do a podcast of all these crap cliches that keep yeah. going around Instagram, and actually hold people hold people accountable for some of these. It's um, it's very difficult, mate. I mean, because obviously when we started out, the, my vision is to help people get better at life, and then yeah, everything's sort of come and you know hashtag blessed and living your best life and better than yesterday and beat yesterday and. Like for, for a lot of the time, I actually think that they're really great phrases, but they've just become associated with complete dickhead Instagram influencers that that whole meaning and, 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 and motivation behind them is. Well, I wish, I wish people would start using stop being a bloody victim. Yeah. You know, yeah. because that's the thing that I, you know, it's just like, okay, everything's against you. Yeah. Woman up. Man up, like stop being a victim. It's not your it's not your place to complain about what's happening to you. It's your place to grow from it because life will never give you more than you can handle. Yeah. Because when it does, you're dead. So why complain about it? Yeah, um, so yeah, the the question I, I was sort of asking there mate is you know, how do you deal with what's gone past? I'm I'm sure you probably do have some days where you're like, "Holy shit, I was in a certain place, and some some things happen." And and you think about it. I think that's human nature. You said from the books that it was quite cathartic going through that process, writing about it. But how do you deal with those scenarios? And what can you share, mate? That what I'm looking for is what we can maybe share with the audience because you've probably been through some pretty sticky situations. I would say. Yeah. Okay. So there's, you've asked a whole heap of interesting questions all in the one question, really. And, and it's different for different, for different people, okay? So if we're talking about post-traumatic stress or something like that, for instance, I firmly believe that leaders can inoculate their subordinates, for use of a better term, in the military, in the police, um, against post-traumatic stress to within a certain parameter – by having visualization exercises and doing realistic training so that people understand what it is that they're going to see. So it doesn't catch them out by surprise. The, the definition of post-traumatic stress is that that thing, that event, you know, you felt that your life was in danger or, or it was chaotic and you had no control. So it's all about you know, being able to control those variables or understanding it. A lot of the guys that I talk to that have got, you know, actually have post-traumatic stress as opposed to just putting a hand out for a freebie, a lot of those guys that actually have post-traumatic stress, a majority of them talk about weak leadership above them and people not being able to make decisions and them, them not being able to then make a decision because of that. And it seems to be a common theme. 
you know, I say about people putting their hands out, there's a lot of people out there that do have post-traumatic stress. Mm. But there are people who are who in, in all, in Australia, the UK and America that are rotting the system. I know that for a fact. Yeah. And people, people, people comment to me or people very rarely reach out to me and say bad things about my comments on post-traumatic stress. They more often than not say, hey, I don't want to be mentioned, but, you know, you're calling it out. Yeah. Um, Yep. And then the other aspect to what you were asking, you know, and I, and I have bad days too, but I've now been able to put my finger on those bad days and understand it. And it's generally when I'm not dialed in with my sleep, with my nutrition or with my training. Mm-hmm. And if those, if those three things are out of kilter, then my resilience is lower, which means that I have to then, because my resilience is lower, it means I then have to rely on my mental toughness more. The two, the two aren't the same. So resilience is the thing that you bring to the fight right now. Mm-hmm. It's made up from your, it's made up partly by your genetics. It's made up partly by your upbringing, and it's also in a direct um, causal effect of your diet. So, so your nutrition, your fluid intake, and also the amount of sleep that you've had. That is what forms your resilience. And your mental toughness is different, as you know. I mean, I'm talking to the, you know, mental toughness king here. Mm. But mental toughness is all about your frames of re- reference and your adaptation, your, your your adaptation to the stimulus that you're currently um, withstanding. So the two of those things work together. Your resilience, your resiliency can be used in emotional context. So you can be less emotional about things because you're resilient, or it can be used to transcend into the physical up to a point where now your mental toughness has to take over. And and I'd like to add that the fitter you are, the fitter you are, the less you have to rely on your mental toughness hmm. because, because the fitness gives you a buffer before the mental toughness has to kick in. Now, the interesting thing about that is for guys like you and me, we take a six-month break. And for you, you had a decent break, right, mm. because of the accident. Mm. And what happens is you're now not in the same place you were when you start training again. And those little workouts, those little workouts that never would have been a problem are now hurting you. That's good, good, yeah. because that's building your mental toughness again. It's good that they're not hurting you. You know, They're hurting you like the way you know, more than what they used to because now you're able to build your mental toughness again. And then you build that mental toughness and then slowly your body gets fitter, you become stronger, you become faster and you're less likely to need that mental toughness. It gets harder for you to create opportunities to build your mental toughness now because you got this. Yeah. You're tough enough. You're mentally, you know, physically tough enough. That's it, mate. That's a really awesome answer. Yeah, it's a, I mean, the, the question I asked is very open-ended and very, very complex as, as well. And I think that's an interesting way to look at it and a very, mate, no one's really explained mental toughness in, in 550 shows quite as well as, as, as you have done there, mate. So there's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of value. Oh, mate, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants though because, you know, I, I'm, I'm currently going down the path of doing a, um, well, uh, you know, requesting candidature for a PhD in leadership. Wow. And and to do that, I'm talking to all manner of people and interviewing people as part of the process for the podcast. And so I've interviewed people like yourself, you know, and I've interviewed Lee's Notbart, which is, you know, PhD, um, Sasha Fulton, PhD, like all these people who have slithers 
of perfection in one area, whether it be in sports science, in psychology. I mean, you've got a, you've got a guy there who understands sports science better than pr- pretty much anyone I've ever met, which is Nicholas Tipper, mm, right? You know, there's yeah. there's all these people in Dubai that they're there for you now. You can go and seek these people out. Yeah. But yeah, it's taken me it's taken me best part of three or four yeah about four years of interviewing people now to understand there's a difference between resilience and mental toughness. Um, and, and some people are more resilient than others. And then we go and, you know, you go and have a cheat meal and, and drink a whole heap of beers and don't sleep over the weekend and wonder why you're all emotional on a, on a you know, Tuesday, <laughs> you know, Sunday, Sunday morning over there, or, you know. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting, mate. Mate, let's move on a little bit to, to, to what you're actually doing now. Obviously, we've mentioned there the Warrior You podcast that everyone should go and check out. We'll link to that in the show notes. You do leadership. Talk to us a little bit about that. What's it all about? Where can people find you? Why should they find you? And where are you going to take it to? Well, the, the two of them are sort of interlinked. So um, my primary job is working for a mining company, which is Pybar. And I, I, I'm the supervisor trainer for them. I run their leadership program. Um, myself and, and, and another guy, we, we go in and run leadership courses and we, we talk a lot to the shift supervisors and the mind form and, and keep everything ticking over. I also have a, a, my own leadership consultancy, which is hindsight leadership. And hindsight leadership is about bringing a whole heap of different people with skill sets, with PhDs and masters in all these different areas so that we can then help our clients um, because we're, we're dealing with problems that are outside their sort of scope or capability to deal with themselves. And it's generally around, you know, um, performance, leadership, you know, structuring their days, productivity, um, getting the best out of their teams. And, and that, that's my, my main passion. Right. Um, Warrior U was born out of the idea of setting up a, a website to help kids who want to join the Australian Defence Force and so it was set up in that in that way, but it's slowly morphing now into really into a human performance optimization and resilience uh, website and podcast. So we're sort of, sort of starting to move away from this leadership piece. And around the end of the year, we're going to and I say we because I've got a small team behind me. We're, we're going to put out a, a leadership um, training online training program that people will be able to sign up to that, that we're recording. Um, and it's it's all being video recorded with questions and answers, and it's it's about it, yeah it's broken up into the modules of human optimization, resilience, and leadership. Yeah. Wow. So those those three things keep me keep me really busy. Yeah, mate. One one of my uh, fr- friend of mine who's actually also a v- very solid triathlete was in the British forces for a long time. You might know lives in Dubai, David Labouchere. And one thing I I always remember I've been to a lot of his talks. And he always, he was in planning and he, he says, we always had a, a one-year plan, a five-year plan, and then a 20-year plan that, you know, a really long-term plan. So I want to I hit you with the middle one, mate. With all of this stuff that you're doing with leadership, where will it get to and with the way that the world's moving? And this is an important part of this question. With the way that we're moving as people, changing as people, where will you be in your business? Where do you see it in, in five years from now? Yeah, first of all, shout out to Dave Labouchere. He's he's somewhat of a he, he was somewhat of a mentor to me actually in oh, Dubai. Wow. I got to look Yeah, I mean I followed Dave into into triathlon and um 
uh, and followed a long way behind, I might add. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, he's one of the best writers I've ever – ever. anyway. Um, yeah, so, look, f- five-year plan for leadership. In, it's interesting because we're in the midst of the gig economy. And so AI, um, these Autobots, all this sort of stuff is changing the way that leaders communicate when they use Slack, um, when they're using Trello, all these different applications. And, and so the, the vision for the future for leadership is really good, I think, because we can be more interconnected, we can be more global. It's going to take a different style of, of leadership and a different style of motivation and a different style of productivity um, and to, to solve some of the, some of the biggest problems. I, th- I think that a place like Dubai as well is just is ripe for, for, the, for the new leaders to, to come through and to shine uh, and to be able to, and to be able to lead and to solve some of the, some of the world's big issues, um, such as climate change, renewable energies. You know you've got the Mazdar Institute. Uh, in Abu Dhabi, which is which is one of the, the the leading you know think tanks around the world for some of these problems, um, but yeah, I, I honestly think that we're in a good place with where leadership is going, and I I I feel that because millennials talk about oh we don't understand leadership, and yet they all get in a room and they've got this horizontal leadership style where they get buy-in from everyone around them, and then they might patch someone else in with a call. You know, and then they might, and then they, you know, and then they might have a whole heap of, you know, Six Sigma stuff going on, and you know, and, and post-it notes all over the walls, and then they all go on this journey together. And yeah, so I, I do think that a lot of this technology is in, is empowering our leaders to be more transparent and to take more ownership, and that's certainly where what I want to study moving forward. Wow. Right, mate. That's um, very. I think, like you said earlier, very positive uh, leadership is positive. Lead, lead by positivity. You've just, uh, you've just demonstrated that right there, mate. You sort of made me feel quite upbeat about the future with that one. So thanks for that. Well, think about think about the Unifight podcast and and the the global reach that it has out of out of a five and a half thousand you know, foot gym. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm sitting here in Perth in an inner fight t-shirt. Yeah. Like there's people, there's, there's, there's people probably in New Zealand that know about it, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's, there's um, people in, pe- people in Canada. So you, so you're able to, mo- if you can now mobilize those people yeah. through technology to do something for you on any given day, then that's leadership right there. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Mate, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I'd like to wrap it up with one another. You'll, you'll have noticed by now, I ask quite broad spectrum questions, but I want you to try and narrow this down. If you could, all of what you've learned, mate, through, through your incredible experiences, if you could leave the listeners with your one go-to bit of advice, what would that be? Mate, I love that question. I've heard you ask it of a few people and I've often you know, thought about what I would say to you if you asked me that. So <laughs> I'm so glad you've given me the opportunity. Um, and a little, a little bit of a story because I know you like to wrap things up in under an hour. But um, <laughs> I, when I was the officer of selection for special forces, I had a guy that, um, that failed the 3.2-kilometre run. And, uh, and generally 99% of the time, or well, nearly 100% of the time, if someone fails that, we just send them home. This guy came up to me afterwards and he goes, oh, look, sir, you know, I'm, I'm, I failed this, but I'm actually a really good runner, but I've been sick and, you know, this is all I've ever wanted to do. And, and can, you know, and it was like that. It was cap in hand. It was, 
and I just wanted to get out of there and couldn't be couldn't really be bothered dealing with the paperwork tonight, you know, and this guy had failed and everyone else had passed. And I looked at him and he's sniffling away and I was like, yeah, okay, look, come back, come back tomorrow morning. We're running one again tomorrow morning. Stay overnight. Come tomorrow morning. It's at 6.30. Um, we'll give you another shot at it. And so we went away and um, my, my sergeant major said to me, you know, what did you do that for? No one, no one, he's not going to pass that. He's failed it by nearly two minutes. Yeah. Anyway, um, the next day he, he rocked up and he passed this thing and he part, he absolutely smashed it. He, he oh. won it in his group. I'm pretty sure like by two, he did uh, three, the 3.2 in 14 minutes, something and that's with webbing and rifle, Wow. you know? So that's, that's, that's moving mate. Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, no worries. And I never really thought anything of it again, except that, um, he reached out to me years gone by and he was in a, he was in a patrol that had a, a Victoria Cross winner, a Medal of Gallantry winner, a whole heap of other guys. And this guy is instrumental to some of those guys surviving. This guy was instrumental to all sorts of things. Wow. And I got to thinking about giving people second chances and not just about giving them second chances, but as a leader, just being a bloody good person. Like just be a good person because I was in a position to say no. Yeah. But if you'd said no to – if I'd said no to this guy, then none of these good things might have happened. And so I, I, I often use that in my mind. I think that's a lesson for me. Just be a good person. Do the right thing. If, and if you're in a position of power and someone's come to you and said, look, I need another chance at this, then give them that other chance. I love it so much, mate. I think, I think that's true. And I think if you think about like even the stuff that, that we've spoken about there, like through, through your background and, and, and when I was on your show, through, through my background, like we were given second chances and that's what's that we didn't get it right first time. You didn't get SAS selection right first time, but you went again. So mate, absolutely awesome stuff. Be a good person. Give people second chances, especially if you're in a position of power. That's uh, mate, very and a very powerful story to finish it up with, mate. When are we going to have the inner fight warrior you sort of get together, mate? Get everyone, <laughs> get everyone, mate. That's what we need to do. Well, mate, something definitely something to, uh, to 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 think about, mate. We've given we've given each brand some some decent exposure there, so mate, and and I really do, folks. I'm going to put all the I'm going to put the links, mate, to 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 your books in the show notes Thanks, as well, and, and 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 people, you know, I will read them, mate. That's my promise to you, and I, I will not just uh, I will not just get the A4 bit of paper from, from from my stepfather. But Bram, you're an absolute champion, mate. So much so much value in that show, mate. And thanks for being so open about some issues that are obviously uh, for a lot of people, especially someone like me. I I sort of didn't know sometimes like if I'm asking the right question and you know it's uh mate you're an absolute champion thanks marcus i appreciate being on the show mate look forward to um catching up with you in dubai maybe awesome bram thanks a lot mate absolute legend